3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the lands from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8.30 a.m. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR, 855 a.m. It is 7 in the morning, and I'm here with Inez and Malika. Can you both hear me? Yes, we can. Yes, we can. Oh, amazing, amazing. And also Leela, who's shadowing us today. Uh, shouts to Leela. Thanks for coming in so early. Um, Hi. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very uh, exciting to be in here with all of you. Uh, we're across two studios again. That's why I just wanted to double check. You know, keeping our COVID protocols going, staying safe, very important. Um, yeah, it's, wow, 17th of March, where it's pretty much... A third of the year is, no, wait, a quarter of the year is over. I don't know how that's happened. I don't know. I, I can't believe it, I, but I, I can never believe it. Um, how are you both going, or all three of you? I'm very tired, um, but I'm also really excited. I feel like Thursday morning breakfast is like one of the highlights of my week, along with Tuesday night bouldering. So it just nice. helps me make sense of what's going on in the week, but also just like an endorphin rush as well. Love that. Yeah, I second that. I'm also very tired, but... Thursday morning breakfast is, I was about to say Tuesday, <laughs> but Thursday morning is definitely a highlight of my week as well. I'm just very happy to be here with everybody. Yeah, it's um, it's good to be in. It's always good to be in. I just think back to when we were producing remotely, and it was so isolating and so stressful, so I'm just very grateful to be able to come in. So um, we've got a pretty big show lined up today. Shall we jump into a rundown? Malika, do you want to kick us off? Yes. Um, so starting off today, we have our first interview with Dakshini Surya Kumaran, who is the Director of Tech Policy at Reset Australia, a think tank focused on digital threats to democracy. They are also a PhD candidate at ANU RegNet, researching automation and racialized surveillance in border policing and social welfare. And they join us to discuss moderation for political ads on social media platforms. And then we'll be joined by Dr. Nisha Tapilial and Sneha Krispal. So Dr. Nisha is an academic at the University of Newcastle, and Sneha is a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne, and they join us today to discuss their recent submission for the National Anti-Racism Framework in relation to caste discrimination in Australia. And then after that, we're going to be joined by Bayami Williamson, who's a research associate and PhD candidate at the Australian National University. And Bayami speaks with us about the disproportionate vulnerability of Indigenous peoples to climate change and the need for Indigenous-centred disaster management and climate change mitigation strategies in Australia. And lastly, we will be joined by Danya, who is the founder of Kate's List which does work around advocating to make politics and workplaces safer for women and people of colour. And they join us to discuss intersectionality in discussions around gender equity and women's safety. 
And we also have a giveaway uh, today, so we'll be reminding people about this throughout the show. But we have free tickets available to subscribers of 3CR on Thursday's bre- on Thursday breakfast. So first of all, there are two double passes for Fire in the Head at the La Mama Theatre on Thursday the 17th of March at 7.30 p.m. And this new play, written by Rosemary Johns, brings to light the harrowing, heroic life of Kate Kelly, sister to Ned, and no relation to our former news excellent person, Kate Kelly, um, <laughs> and the deep-rooted truths about gender and violence in Australia. And then we also have a one double pass to the Groove Tunes music show, great name, on Saturday 19th of March at the Corner Hotel, Swan Street in Richmond. And the Groove Tunes music content strives to make coming to a gig a positive experience for all those including disability. Um, access facilities include Sensory Zone, accessible and gender-neutral bathrooms, Auslan interpreters and lyric videos, wheelchair access including a lowered drinks bar for the night, guide dogs welcomed and volunteers for assistance. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I think, you know, this is the sort of standard that we should have for events in general, and we've been seeing accessibility measures rolled back as people are returning to quote-unquote COVID normal. So this sounds like a really awesome event. And all you need to do to enter to get those tickets, the double pass to Fire in the Head at La Mama and the one double pass to Groove Tunes Music Show is call the station this morning between 8 and 8.30 a.m. on 03-9419-8377. That's 03-9419-8377 or SMS on 488 809-855. That's 0488-809-855. So good luck. And uh, we might just jump into ACSA before we take you to headlines. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people, and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. These are the headlines for Thursday the 17th of March. Flood-affected First Nations people in the Northern Rivers areas are experiencing racism in their efforts to access emergency accommodation. Nearly 200 residents of Cabbage Tree Island are without a home following recent floods that forced the entire town to evacuate. The Jali Local Aboriginal Land Council says floods have exacerbated the existing housing crisis in the area and that First Nation families are being turned away from emergency housing. For First Nations listeners, this next headline, um, we ask you to please be aware that we're about to discuss an Aboriginal person who has passed away. So several high-profile journalists have condemned the Australian newspaper's coverage of the acquittal of Northern Territory Police Officer Zachary Rolfe for the shooting death of Kumanjai Walker. The Australian breached and ignored cultural protocols clearly set out by Kumanjai Walker's family prior to the trial in what Media Diversity Australia has described as a national disgrace. 
This comes as Northern Territory Police placed Zachary Rolfe and launched an investigation into internal disciplinary matters. Anti-police say the investigation is unrelated to the recent trial and has declined to comment further. In other news, long wait times for accessing home-based support are forcing some older Australians into residential care as aged care workforce shortages continue to be a nationwide problem. Three wait times have significantly reduced since the 2018 Royal Commission into aged care did lead to more funding. Home care package providers say they are being forced to turn away clients because of the shortage of carers. These have been the news headlines with the... Say, the 17th of March. March. Sorry, Uh, my brain. No, it's okay. Um, Yeah, I just wanted to, um, I just wanted to comment on that um, that reporting, that really disgraceful reporting, um, and just about some other concerns that have been raised about the case. So, um, I'm aware that yesterday morning the anti-corruption watchdog ICAC is uh, considering an investigation into um, into that decision to arrest. Zachary Rolfe, and uh, there were also reports this week that one of the jurors in the case was the sibling of a police officer, which the juror had flagged to the judge, but they were allowed to remain on the jury. So a couple of questions there, and we're really hoping to, um, you know, get to the bottom of this in all solidarity and strength to the Walpuri community. Um, They have faced this with you know, such dignity and composure and grace through such a horrible and heartbreaking time. Um, and, you know, this is obviously not the outcome that they wanted. And to be, I don't know, to be smeared in the media right afterwards is absolutely shameful. Um, did either of you want to jump in with anything else? Or all good? No, I think uh, the reporting has been really disgraceful. And knowing that the jury selection process wasn't carried through properly and you know obviously we don't live in a post-colonial society I don't know if anybody actually really believes that but you know the small amount of relative justice that you can get uh through the social justice system the criminal justice system uh fails on all accounts over and over again and it's set up to fail and it was designed that way so I think it's just really upsetting that this has become a norm you know yeah, absolutely. And just a constant reminder to listen to the Walpuri community. They put out a bunch of statements on social media. So I think they're available at Justice for Walker um, on Instagram. Um, you know, statements in relation to the case, uh, you know, how they've not given up the fight and, um, you know, indication on how you can support by amplifying their voices. And really, you should be uh, listening to and reading the work of Aboriginal journalists on this as well. Um, you know, they're... There's been, you know, that's where a lot of the critique has come from as well and a lot of really powerful critique about media ethics and standards. So, yeah, once again, solidarity with the Walpuri community from 3CR Community Breakfast. A proud black man, proud black man, should not wonder. Strong spirit, First Nations issues, families, people and stories from a First Nations perspective. Mondays at 1pm on 3CR. Proud black man, proud black man, it should not wonder. Get your radical summer attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio tees has just landed. 
featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colors in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tee that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post. And there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our T-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. And you're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And I just wanted to raise attention about another event that is happening soon. And so this is in relation to the Moreland Council's ask about how to allocate its funding. And the Renters and Housing Union in Oahu has asked people to help communities and renters by allocating money for renters' rights info nights. So voting closes for that on March the 20th, this Sunday. So if you do live in the Moreland Council area, this is a chance to help secure $10,000 in council funds funding for renters rights info nights run by Rahu and you can find out more information about how to make a submission by going to Rahu's Twitter account so that's at Rahu North sorry this is the northern branch of Rahu and uh, basically, they've got instructions about how to head to, you know, the Moreland Council's website, how to make a submission, where to vote. And once again, this is, if successful, going to be an estimated $10,000 allocated to support renters' rights info nights in the northern suburbs. So really, really important work that Rahu is doing and something that, I don't know, I think we can all get behind. Yeah, absolutely. I think also because um, working in the housing sector, uh, just knowing how COVID has exacerbated an already long-term problem, um, and it is not a problem, it's a policy choice that is continuously being made, and COVID has, you know, brought light to light many things that a lot of people already knew existed, but having, you know, chronic health conditions, mental health conditions, trying to get housing, get on the Victorian Housing Register, and then, yeah, it, it just keeps... There's there's so many barriers in place, and I think it's really difficult for um, someone on maybe perhaps on the outside to looking. Some of these wait lists are, can be up to seven years long. Um, sometimes rooming, rooming houses aren't very safe, and a lot of crisis accommodation is not set up to, uh, you know, set people up for success in traditional housing. And I think, you know, people who are experiencing homelessness have every asset in their toolkit to advocate for themselves and really they just need support and resources. Um, yeah, absolutely. And renters' rights workshops really feed into, um, you know, helping people stay housed um, and also helping people, you know, get housed if that is, um, you know, if they're looking to access the private rental market. So we might go to an interview now that Malika is going to do with Dakshayani. So I'll pass on to you, Malika. Thank you, Priya. Um, we are now joined by Dakshini Surya Kumaran, who is the Director of Tech Policy at Reset Australia, a think tank focused on digital threats to democracy, and they are also a PhD candidate at ANU Regnet, um, researching automation and racialized surveillance in border policing and social welfare, and they are joining us this morning to discuss moderation for political ads on social media platforms. Good morning, Dakshayini. Good morning. 
Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Really, really excited for our interview. Um, so we might just get straight into it. Um, prior to the 2016 US elections, Russia was able to utilize social media platforms like Facebook to spread misinformation surrounding candidates and the election. This understandably raised concerns globally and Reset Australia, a tech think tank, ran an, a bit of an experiment to test Facebook's filter for misinformation. Could you tell us a bit more about this experiment? Sure, very happy to. And I guess this experiment that we conducted is, I think it's important to note, happening in a broader context where mis- and disinformation has really altered our democracy and, operate, and, and altered how our kind of public square operates. And so it's really hard to have kind of factual debates increasingly. Uh, and, you know, Facebook, or, you know, as it's now called Meta, uh, is a company that's been subject to, you know, growing scrutiny because they have been embroiled in, you know, perpetual scandal, scandal after scandal. Um, and particularly uh, recently, whistleblower Francis Haugen, who was a former Facebook exec, really revealed how the company was complicit in a really broad range of harm. So everything from, you know, um, impacts to young teenage girls, particularly around their body image, uh, complicity in human trafficking, and of course, as you've mentioned, election interference. And so really, uh, we saw this experiment as a way to really kind of put some of um, Meta's systems to the test. So uh, for those watching closely, Meta did come out with an announcement just um, earlier this week saying, you know, here's a whole suite of actions that we're taking to protect uh, Australia's democracy during the election, you know, and they talked about um, expanded fact-checking and training and, and political ad transparency measures featured as well. And so this experiment really um, was a way to, to kind of challenge that. So, so what the experiment was, and we've done a lot of these over the past two years, is we, we basically... Um, our team crafted five ads which had common disinfo narratives from the last US election. So um, things like, you know, that parties were printing ballots or things around elect- electronic voting or even things around um, you wouldn't be able to vote if you weren't vaccinated. So these kind of quite explicit examples of, of disinformation and tried to get them approved through um, Facebook or Meta's system. And so all of the five ads that we experimented with were approved um, mostly almost immediately within the first three hours and one took 24 hours. Mm. Um, But essentially the experiment showed that, you know, all the claims that um, Josh Matten, Facebook's um, executive that's kind of been announcing these electoral safeguards, it really calls into question the robustness of of the safeguards that they are... um, purporting to put in place. Yeah, and thank you for, so much for explaining the context behind that as well. And from my understanding, it's also up to users to disclose that any ads they want to post are about social issues, elections or politics. And disclosing this leads to additional reviewing and transparency measures. What are the repercussions of relying on individual responsibility to disclose this? This is such a great question. And it's a lesser known fact, what you've just stated, which is that you know, all of the robust measures that are in place, they're only really there if, if 
the individual user discloses, you know, this is a particular, this is a political ad or this is an ad about a particular social issue. So we, um, as you said, we chose not to disclose that it was a political ad just to test, you know, what would happen. And, um, yeah, the result was what I described. So I think what we're seeing here is a kind of, you know, the, this is an ongoing pattern that we've seen where platforms are shifting the accountability to individual users and, you know, they often talk about problematic actors and problematic content rather than being accountable themselves. And I think the reason for this is quite clear um, and that is really that, um, you know, ultimately the biggest threat to the election is the way that the algorithms that these platforms are amplifying false and problematic and harmful content and really the measures that are being outlined. So, you know, the ad delivery system is largely an automated system. There's some human moderators, but it's largely automated. So mm. um, we, we've seen how um, the narratives that big tech platforms have really been peddling around, you know, we can use AI to, to kind of get rid of all of this terrible content, but ultimately it's the algorithms that are the problem. And I guess, you know, um, what's, really come into clear focus through all of the um, whistleblowers, but particularly Francis Haugen, is that, you know, Meta knows that the more extreme um, content elicits a bigger reaction, gets more clicks, gets more reshares, comments, and is therefore more profitable for the company. And so, you know, she was really good at highlighting that fundamental tension between what's best for the company and what's best for the public. And, and she kind of perpetually said this, this one statement, which is that the company's placing profits before people. Um, and it's, it's really clear, I think, in, in, um, it, once you kind of dig deeper into how these kind of automated content systems actually operate. Yeah, so true. I think what's sitting with me is what you said, like these companies play into profit before they have any concern for people. Um, and I guess bringing it to like the Australian context, in late 2019, the Senate resolved to establish a select committee on foreign interference through social media. And I'm pulling this next bit directly from the website, but it says it's to inquire into and report on the risk posed to Australia's democracy by foreign interference through social media. And this was to assess the nature of foreign interference through social media and the challenges presented to Australian democracy. It would aim to focus on platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, Google, TikTok and WeChat. And so could you speak more to how this would impact online platforms. Sure. That's that's also such a really great and detailed question. And so um, really, I guess, the broader context of policy um, as it relates to big tech is that there, we have seen quite a lot of appetite to kind of think more about how do you regulate this industry. So this started a while back with the um, ACCC's Digital Platforms Inquiry, um, our Online Safety Act. Um, you know, we're, we're in the middle of a Privacy Act review. Um, there's, there's many things kind of happening in this space. There was also recently um, a House Select Committee on Social Media and Online Safety, which just um, released their report just a couple of days ago. Um, but to go back to your question and, and this particular kind of committee, they um, released an interim report just towards the end of last year. And, yeah, the findings, I think, are really interesting. So, um, yeah, it, it, it kind of just really documented um, in a lot of detail, you know, in the Australian... Obviously, as you've mentioned, in, internationally, a lot of 
instances of foreign interference, particularly as they relate to elections, have been well documented. And so this, I think, report was trying to look at evidence gathering in the Australian context. Um, and, you know, it covered things like COVID mis- and disinformation um, and actually emphasised how there's increasingly narratives being imported, particularly on, in this regard, from the United Kingdom, from um, Europe from and the US into Australia in ways that are kind of stoking the far right, which I think is a really important point that it's making. And, and I guess a lot of the recommendations were mostly around, you know, pretty um, straightforward things like, um, you know, streamlining the regulatory oversight of, of, of how social media is regulated. So um, more transparency, um, there's, there's kind of quite fragmented reporting and communication between the platforms and governments and things like that. Um, but yeah, so ultimately I think what the intent behind um, this committee and the other House Select Committee on Social Media and Online Safety is, is hopefully a push towards stronger, more systemic regulation. And I would say that actually the, the report released by the um, House Select Committee on Social Media and Online Safety earlier this week was particularly strong in its recommendations around, like, we can't just focus on the downstream content. Um, we can't rely on these platforms to regulate themselves. It, it, it was quite clear on that, and it was really looking, um, you know, it actually explicitly said that we need to look at upstream, you know, regulations, which kind of means, like, how are these platforms being designed? What are the impacts of these algorithms? So it's, I guess, um, it's heartening because there's there's a sense that um, perhaps, you know, these stronger, more upstream regulations are, are coming. Yeah, thank you so much. Again, once again, for providing that larger context around it. And it's great to hear that there is, like, a bit of a tiny win in this context as well, too. And for any suggestions for listeners who are looking to online platforms for information around election time, what can they t- do to ensure that they aren't subject to targeting and manipulation, especially with um, for, with the federal elections coming up as well as the state elections? Very true, yes. Uh, yeah, and I guess um, what I would say to that is I think it's really important for all of us as social media users to understand how the business model actually works and how these platforms are um, not just, you know, worth dictating what ads we see, but they're actually structuring our whole online world. And, you know, um, as, as many of your your listeners will know, we're, we're going into these narrow and narrow filter bubbles of information. Um, and I guess and many of your listeners as well will be very critical, I'm sure, in, what they, in how they approach what they read online. Um, and I'm sure, you know, read widely from like a range of sources and, and make sure you're thinking critically about what you're engaging with. But I, I think ultimately it's really important um, to, uh, yes, users need to, to be critical and, and engage consciously in how um, they interact and, and um, engage with social media. But I think it's just, you know, at Reset Australia, we just keep coming back to the fact that we just really need systemic upstream legally binding regulation because these big tech platforms are so powerful um, and and that's the only way that um, we are going to kind of um, resist their power and um, and I guess we, we don't want to play, you know, into the narrative that individuals can um, solve this on their own, yeah. but it is 
so important, as you say. It's such a good question because, you know, we're, we're in this regulatory vacuum. We don't have systemic regulations and we do have looming elections. So it's a really good point that, that users should be engaging really critically online. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that bit, last bit of advice, especially for my parents listening. Listen up, please. Use multiple sources and fact check with me at least. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for joining us this morning, Dakshini, and sharing um, all of that helpful insight and context and information. Um, but yeah, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, and we just heard from Dakshayini Surya Kumaran, who is the Director of Tech Policy at Reset Australia, a think tank focused on digital threats to democracy. They are also a PhD candidate at ANU RegNet, researching automation and racialized surveillance in border policing and social welfare, and they joined us this morning to discuss moderation for political ads on social media platforms. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and we are about to remind you again about the giveaway that we have on today. Yes, we have free tickets available to subscribers on 3CR Thursday breakfast for two double passes for Fire in the Head at the La Mama Theatre on Thursday 17th of March at 7.30. This new play, written by Rosemary Jones, brings to light the harrowing heroic life of Kate Kelly, sister to Ned, and the deep-rooted truths about gender and violence in Australia. We also have one double pass to the Groove Tunes Music Show on Saturday the 19th of March at the Corner Hotel on Swan Street in Richmond. The Groove Tunes Music Concert strives to make coming to a gig a positive experience for all, including those with a disability. Access facilities include a sensory zone, accessible and gender-neutral bathrooms, Auslan interpreters and lyric videos, wheelchair access including a lowered drinks bar for the night, guide dogs welcomed, and volunteers for assistance. Yes, and I will also remind our listeners to, uh, if you can, at least share or donate to the Disability Justice Network, just because they uh, are an ongoing fund and they're a mutual aid fund and they really have been doing incredible work and it's run by disabled people for disabled people and I think it's forever important and if you can set up an ongoing donation, I'm sure it would be very, very uh, welcome. Yes, excellent. But to get these double passes, we, the two double passes to Fire in the Head at La Mama and the one double pass to Groove Tunes, all you need to do is call the station this morning between 8 and 8.30 a.m. on 03-9419-8377. Uh, that's 03-9419-8377 or SMS on 0488-809-855. That's 048 I'm sorry, 0488-809-855. And yeah, uh, may the fastest caller or texter win those passes. And once again, this is open to 3CR subscribers. Although I'm sure people won't mind if you call and text in to subscribe and also enter the competition. Either way, you must be subscribed. But uh, good luck to everybody. And uh, thanks for listening to us. So, 
Here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Jan. We're going to go to a track now, and this is the new one from King Stingray. This is Camp Dog.
You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and that was Cat Dog by King Stingray. And I really encourage people to go check out the awesome album artwork as well. It is very, very cool. And I'm just extremely amused by the post that King Stingray made on Instagram to uh, – advertise the upcoming release of Camp Dog, which is just a video of them and, you know, some surf with the subtitle, Your New Surf Rock Starts Playing, which I absolutely love. But we're going to go into another song that I'm sure is going to get you going this morning. This is one that we've played before, but an absolutely excellent tune, uh, Gold Energy by Electric Fields.
And that was Gold Energy by Electric Fields. Um, absolute uh, excellent pump-up song for your morning on its 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. And now we're going to go to Inez, who has an interview lined up for us. Thank you, Priya. Today we are joined by Dr. Nisha Taplial and Sneha Kushpal. Uh, Dr. Neha Taplial is an academic at the University of Newcastle who teaches and studies social justice movements, and Sneha is pursuing her PhD at the University of Melbourne. She conducts research in relation to caste, gender, inequalities within organisational spaces, and they join us today to discuss the Australian Human Rights Commission submission Uh, That rhymes. Uh, For a national anti-racism framework, and we are specifically speaking about their submission to about caste discrimination in in Australia. Thanks so much for joining us here today, both of you. Thank you so much for inviting us. Yeah, more than happy to. (laughs) Uh, Maybe let's just jump right in because I know there's quite a bit to cover. Um, I know that the Australian Human Rights Commission has launched a plan to develop a national anti-racism framework. And the framework is said to be a long-term central reference point to guide actions on anti-racism by governments, NGOs, health professionals, educators, society, and community. So maybe I'll start off with Nisha, if that's all right. Um, why do you hope, what do you, I guess, what do you hope the national anti-racism framework will achieve and why do you think it's necessary? Thanks, Inez, for having us. I'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the unceded lands and waters on which we live. I'm joining you from the land of the Awabakal peoples. I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present, and emerging, and I recognize that this land always was and always will be Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander land because sovereignty has never been ceded. Uh, To answer your question, Uh, You know, uh, I'd like to start by uh, borrowing from uh, Race Discrimination Commissioner Chin Tan, who wrote, um, you know, in in one of the guideline documents around this framework, um, that Australia was at a tipping point when it came to racism. And it's time to move from, you know, safe to brave in addressing the issues of racism and inclusion that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have faced for so long, as well as some Australians, right, around issues of, uh, for example, Islamophobia, um, you know, the the far right and so forth. So um, the way we see it, um, you know, uh, like First Nations people here, uh, racism and discrimination is everyone's responsibility. Um, And at the same time, we're taking on a really complex, problem, right, that has, uh, that involves, for example, both visible and invisible forms of uh, discrimination and exclusion and oppression. So, you know, we, I see the framework not just as some kind of symbolic state of commitment. I study policy. And so for me, the framework is a bridge, you know, if you, if you can think of it that way, between policy and practice, because we're asking a whole nation and society to come on board with a shared vision, um, you know, and address this problem in a coordinated and consistent way. And um, so, you know, what good, strong frameworks do, firstly, is provide clear but complex definitions about what the problem is, right? And we can only do that, as our First Nations people have reminded us, by talking to the people who've experienced the problem. So in our case, we would hope that there would be extensive consultations with, uh, you know, South Asian Australians 
from caste oppressed groups. Um, the second thing, you know, a strong framework does, of course, is collect data on the scope and prevalence of the problem, because in the case of caste uh, discrimination, certainly we don't know enough. Yeah. Um, it also, uh, you know, requires everybody involved, you know, government, agencies, organizations, NGOs, um, institutions, to map the existing capacity that we have to engage with the problem, right? So here's the good news, that there are organizations and groups and institutions out there doing good work, education work, advocacy work. We can learn from them. Um, yeah. And uh, lastly, of course, you've got to monitor, right, and hold uh, everyone accountable regularly, consistently. Um, and that's what, you know, a good framework does to answer your questions. Yeah, that's right. Thank you so much, Lisa, for, you know, a very considered and thoughtful answer. Uh, I think in relation to specifically caste discrimination, because uh, I know that that's what you, the recent submission um, that all of you have collaborated on, and it's it's really, really important because I don't feel like it's talked about enough. And to pull mm-hmm. from the submission, it says, caste oppressed groups around the world, they continue to experience profound injustices due to socioeconomic inequalities, um, the asseparation of their land rights, and they also experience brutal violence at the hands of upper caste. And mm-hmm. maybe I'll direct this to Sneha. Uh, Sneha, would you mind maybe explaining what caste is and what caste discrimination is exactly? Sure. Um, I'd like to begin as well by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which we talk today and meet today, the peoples of the Kulin Nation. I also pay my respects to the elders past and present. Um, so caste is a 3,000-year-old system of social stratification and oppression in the Indian subcontinent and affects almost a quarter of the world's population. And it affects an individual's social position, occupational choices, social interactions, cultural practices, and organizational life. And it is based on a belief that, uh, that the value of a human being is determined at birth. And um, there's a hierarchy. And so those who are at the top or the upper caste are inherently pure, while those who are lower are considered more polluted and inferior. And those, there are those who are outside the caste system as well. These are the untouchables. And they are so dirty and polluted that they are treated less than human. Um, and so what happens in the system is that there is this protection of this ritualistic purity throughout the hierarchies. And so it's also normalized through marriage. So they practice endogamy where people within the caste have to marry within that caste itself. Um, so now coming to caste discrimination, so casteism is an interfaith, intercaste, and international issue. And it's also a civil rights and human rights issue. And so it is an intersectional system of discrimination. Um, it has a supremacist way of thinking and acting that is prevalent in institutional, cultural, and interpersonal spaces. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think what you've spoken about is showing that it is such a important social determinant um, that leads to both, you know, opportunities for upper caste and discrimination for lower caste. And uh, importantly, that it is a very, very key feature of labor markets and business economies across the globe. I um, I also know that, you know, it's important to understand that, yeah, as you've said, caste is not just some archaic system, that it is still thriving in countries like Australia. Um, so maybe 
I'll start off with Nisha um, and then maybe go to Sneha. How do you think that maybe caste discrimination actually differs in Australia, as so-called Australia, as opposed to India, let's say? Um, sure. Thanks, um, Ines. So, you know, unfortunately, this is uh, a system that's now illegal. You know, for example, India and Nepal banned it after they, they became independent from um, colonization, but it remains very much a, a brutal and tragic reality, and it has traveled with South Asians wherever they have gone around the world, right? That's the most important thing. And so in our submission, we um, tried to capture, you know, what it looks like and how it works here. So I'd like to start by um, a testimonial from a, from, a, uh, from somebody uh, from a caste oppressed group that we included in the submission. This is what they had to say. It's a very common tendency amongst Indians to ask questions to identify the caste of a fellow Indian origin countryman. And then caste can be inferred from a combination of factors, such as last name, food habits, rituals, cultural identity, heritage. And once caste is identified, it defines social relations and provides a basis for preferential treatment or discrimination. Right. Um, so that gives you an idea of how it, you know, it starts the moment you introduce yourself to someone. So, for example, my last name, Paplial, is an upper caste Brahmin priest surname. Right. And then people make a whole bunch of assumptions about who I am and what I'm capable of just based on that surname before they meet me. Now, in our submission, of course, we uh, collected um, data uh, uh, more data from Australia as well as from other um, countries with large numbers of South Asian migrants. And we really want to stress this is a South Asian problem, right? This is not about one country or nationality or religion. Um, and so we also, um, you know, for example, uh, collected these uh, news article reports uh, where we have international students from across South Asia talking about the reality of casteism uh, in, in their housing situation, right? People refuse to live with them, refuse to eat with them once they found that, find out or they assume wrongly or rightly that someone is from a lower caste or a Dalit, right? Uh, which is a name that um, uh, people formally refer to as untouchables have adopted, right? They reject um, names like uh, Untouchable and so forth. Um, so I'll stop here and hand over to Sneha, who can also talk a bit about what it looks like right here. Um, so just looking at the diasporas, right? Um, and since I do a lot of research in the organization space, so we see that cost is really prevalent also in the organizational space. So if, take an example of, you know, um, if people are hiring, if they're from an upper caste, they tend to weed out people, like um, Nisha said, through their last names or family backgrounds. So they come to know through the last names that, you know, they are from a, per, um, from a particular caste, and then they'll, you know, weed them out and not prevent, you know, allow them to be hired or allow them for a career progression in organization. And so we see these subtle and more, um, you know, it's not very visible. They're invisible practices that are um, perpetuating in Australia itself. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, really lends a hand to a lot of 
what the national framework is actually trying to address. I think it's really wonderful and important that you've been able to make the submission and also make it really thoughtful and considered. And it's clear that, you know, your, your heart really is in it and you really want to be able to make um, – a difference would also shed light on the fact that this this is a human rights and a civil rights issue, mm-hmm. um, and it is very clear that caste must be included in, you know, anti-racism work um, to protect historically excluded and, uh, you know, vulnerable caste oppressed groups such as Dalit community members. Uh, maybe let's start with uh, Sneha, and then we'll go to Nisha. Uh, could we, maybe for our listeners and, uh, you know, for me as well, <laughs> um, how do you think that we can learn more about caste discrimination and also how do we support the elimination of caste-based discrimination in so-called Australia? Sure. Um, so I think it starts from just dialogue and talking. Um, like Nisha said before, um, it's so important that we start having these conversations um, with people. People want to talk about it, especially from the lower caste, the press caste, that they really want to talk about these issues. And they're using so many platforms now to do that, you know. Um, it began with the Dalit literature through poetry and, um, you know, film and through um, books. And so um, we'll probably give you some examples of that as well, but also through social media. Since social media is becoming such a great um, platform to talk about these things. Um, So, you know, there's um, people like um, the Quality Labs or uh, the Dalit Voice on Twitter, for example, that write a lot about these um, cost issues. And so it's so important to um, be in touch with these sort of platforms and use them and, you know, start talking about these things. Yeah, I think what I'd add to that is, you know, it's um, so much has changed in the last two decades um, because, I mean, there's always been resistance to um, caste oppression, right? 3,000 years of oppression, 3,000 years of resistance. Um, On the subcontinent, you know, we've had um, uh, Dalits and Bahujan women and men writing and advocating about these issues for hundreds of years, right? So we uh, but a lot of that is not in English. But the good news is that, you know, in the last two decades, um, you know, it is in English. So anyone can join the conversation and and educate themselves about what's going on, um, you know, if we're committed to anti-racist work. And uh, what I would add, I suppose, to um, what Neha has shared is, you know, if, if human rights and civil rights is something that, um, uh, you know, you, you're already involved in, then perhaps the first place you could go to is the International Dalit Solidarity Network. Um, you know, and we're not suggesting that any of these organizations or individuals are the Dalit voice, right? Yeah, um, absolutely. Which is providing, uh, you know, entry points. So, yeah, if you want to sort of get involved at that international level, please do sell, uh, support the International Dalit Solidarity Network. Look at their website. They've got a fabulous, um, you know, resources. Um, you know, if you're a Bollywood fan, um, you know, please keep on watching Bollywood, but maybe check now about what you're seeing on screen because, you know, bo- I mean, unfortunately, Bollywood is still, of course, um, dominated by uh, people with caste privilege, right? Um, yeah. And then, I mean, it's a huge part of the problem, right? How this kind of supremacist way of thinking is normalized through Bollywood representations, right? Of, uh, you know, and gendered and sexualized representations. But the good news is, Today, you can't, any film that comes out, you're going to find some Dalit activist or intellectual 
providing a really good critique about how, you know, what the messages really are. So that's the second uh, strategy that I would offer. And then, of course, you know, both Sneha and I are, um, uh, we rely on Dalit feminists. We respect and admire Dalit feminists greatly because this is, as we said, an intersectional issue. And, and what, you know, what's happened to Dalit women and their bodies in the name of, you know, purity and pollution uh, is, is, is just, um, is, yeah, uh, awful. So, yeah, we, we talked about this, and we wanted to uh, share our favorite authors with you. And so I'll just um, – so uh, uh, Sneha is a big fan of someone called Sujata Gidla. She's based in the U.S., um, and she'll tell you the name of the book in a minute when I stop talking. And my favorite would be Nina Kandasani. Uh, she's a feminist poet and writer. Um, she's also all over YouTube, and I strongly recommend – um, taking a minute to listen to her talking about anything. Thanks. Oh, thank you so much. Uh, that was such a wonderfully thoughtful response and being able to have recommendations as well is wonderful uh, and being able to, you know, recognize that media, no matter where you are, is a propaganda machine mm-hmm. and yeah. um, social media can sometimes be a small antidote of that, of uh, real voices. And, yeah, well, I just want to thank you both for your time and and um, Sneha as well. Thank you, Ines, Thank for having so us. Yeah, Sneha, did you want to jump in and let us know about that book? Oh, yes. So the book is called Ants Among Elephants by Sujata Gidla. It's a good one to read. Great, wonderful. Thank you so much. Um, yes, I will be sure to try to link that as well in the episode notes but yeah i hope you have a wonderful day and thank you so much for your knowledge and dissecting a really really complex um intersectional topic that is really important and often left out so i'm really appreciative of your time as well thanks for having us inez have a good day you too thanks Thanks, bye You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we just heard an interview with, uh, sorry, we just heard an interview with Dr. Nisha Taplial, who's an academic at the University of Newcastle, and Sneha Krispal, who's a PhD candidate at the University of Melbourne, who joined us today to discuss their recent submission for the National Anti-Racism Framework, or NARF, in relation to caste discrimination in Australia. And once again, they shared some excellent resources with us, and we will share links to those in our show notes. Uh, You're listening to 855 on your AM, sorry, 855 on your AM dial. And uh, just want to plug again the um, the giveaway that we have on today. So we've got free tickets available to subscribers on 3CR's Thursday breakfast show. And all you need to do is call the station this morning between 8 and 8.30 a.m. to get two double passes for Fire in the Head at the La Mama Theatre on Thursday, the 17th of March at 7.30 p.m. And also one double pass to the Groove Tunes music show on Saturday, the 19th of March at the Corner Hotel, Swan Street in Richmond, which is an accessible and positive experience, um, which with a range of accessibility measures. So to enter and, um, yeah, potentially win some of these free tickets, uh, you need to be a 3CR subscriber, and all you need to do is call the station this morning between 8 and 8.30 a.m. on 03-9419-8377. That's 03-9419-8377. Or text on 0488-809-855. That's 0488-809-855. 
paying the heavy price for COVID? How about healthy, safe conditions at work? More health care, less police powers, a safe world with free vaccines for everyone. Rally Saturday, the 19th of March. Fight for public health and workplace safety. State Library, 12 o'clock noon. This rally was initiated by Workers Solidarity and rally organisers are 3CR supporters. Melbourne Jazz Jammers present the second Newport Jazz Festival. 60 plus bands, 7 venues and 3 days of great music from some of Melbourne's finest musicians. 29th of April to 1st of May. Trad, swing, blues, big band, Latin, bossa, bebop and beyond. Tickets at the Newport Bowls Club box office in Market Street or online at melbournejazzjammers.com.au The Friendly Festival. The Newport Jazz Festival is a 3CR supporter. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we are joined now by Biami Williamson, who is a researcher and a PhD, a research associate and PhD candidate at the Australian National University, who's speaking with us about the disproportionate impact of climate change on Indigenous peoples and the need for Indigenous-centred disaster management and climate change mitigation in, uh, strategies in Australia. Biami, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Pleasure. So um, before we jump into the interview proper, would you like to introduce yourself in a little more detail? Sure. So, um, yeah, Bobby Williamson. So, as you said, I'm at the Australian National University, a research associate, PhD candidate. Um, from Uwale, uh, man. So I'm from, my people are from northwest New South Wales, and so I live out here in the, the small um, little Aboriginal community called Gadooga. Um, up near the Queensland border. Uh, we're up in the middle of the Murray-Darling Basin, but my mother also comes from um, northwest Queensland, from Concurry, and her family go up into the Gulf of Carpentaria. So it's just nice to have that background. Yeah, absolutely, and gives a good grounding for the discussion that we're going to have today. Um, so in an article for the conversation published earlier this month, you discussed the disproportionate impact of climate change on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities with respect to the recent catastrophic flooding across Queensland and New South Wales. And I was wondering if you could speak to this disproportionate impact and some of the socio socioeconomic as well as cultural effects that such climate change disasters have on Indigenous peoples. Sure. So the disproportionate impact that we talk about when we talk about um, yeah, how uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are impacted by disasters. So generally, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people live in areas that are more prone to disasters, um, areas that are like a central uh, in interior Australia, areas that are much more prone to things like drought and, um, um, and dust storms, a lot more populations throughout northern Australia, which are obviously much more um, prone to cyclones and, um, and along the coastal areas, 
um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people live generally in areas that are more prone to fires and floods. So we've seen that absolutely during the 2019-20 bushfires that impacted large amounts of country and also huge populations of Aboriginal people. And we're seeing it again in the floods. And in particular, that area of like the Northern Rivers of New South Wales is a huge um, Aboriginal population in there. Um, it's one of the highest density Aboriginal populations in all of New South Wales throughout that whole region. There's a lot of discrete Aboriginal communities. And these are the areas that are... Um, that are obviously being really, really, you know, catastrophically impacted by the by the flood. So um, disproportionate in terms of the sheer number of people, as well as the proportion of the population, like around Lismore, Kempsey, Ballina, um, the Aboriginal population is, you know, in some places exceeds 12% of the general population. Um, and you compare that with the national average of sort of just, just a bit over 3%, you're talking about people who are, sort of three to four more times likely to be impacted. So there's the number of people impacted, but there's also the profile of the population being really, really young, which means that um, more of the children impacted by disasters in these areas, more of them are going to the Aboriginal because we've got a very youthful population profile. Um, and so the number of people, the age and demographic of the population and finally, as he said, the um, cultural and spiritual impacts of people who are inherently attached to country, um, when catastrophe befalls that country, well, then they experience a unique grief that, you know, Western modalities of, like, mental health um, and counselling and that kind of thing, those supports are just inadequate. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, I guess on those cultural impacts as well, I was speaking with Tishiko King, um, who's a proud Torres Strait Islander woman um, and organiser with Seed Mob as well about, you know, the fact that losing land with rising sea levels because of climate change in the Torres Straits, for example, is disrupting connection to land and to country. And so that is, you know... Um, it's really important to keep in mind not just those impacts that um, that people face in terms of socioeconomic uh, challenges, but also the spiritual and cultural ones as well. Um, so in 2020, you presented a powerful testimony at the Royal Commission into National Natural Disaster Arrangements in the wake of the 2019-2020 bushfire season. And this was based on a submission that you co-authored with Dr. Jessica Weir and Dr. Francis Markham at the Australian National University, which had a focus on the importance of cultural land management. And the report from that inquiry was tabled in October of 2020. So we've had a bit of time since then, and I'm um, hoping you could share some of your thoughts on the recommendations that it contained on addressing and responding to natural disasters and also progress on implementation till date, um, with particular emphasis on Indigenous peoples and inclusion of Indigenous knowledges. Yes, so the Royal Commission was an interesting one. Um, uh, the Royal Commission was really um, a great opportunity to have that national platform and to, to sort of bring these issues to a very, um, yeah, a very willing audience, um, being people nationally and internationally who are really interested in this stuff. Um, and so that was great. The Royal Commission didn't really uh, provide the basis, um, um, well, certainly that I feel, um, was needed to really push the agenda for increasing and um, better resourcing cultural imagination programs like things like Aboriginal Ranger programs and that and, and then things like that. Um, but it also there's questions around whether or not it's the best place for it as well. 
what we did see in the Royal Commission and through the recommendations was, um, you know, very clear um, attempts from the Commonwealth to push cultural land management programs uh, onto the states. Now, that's the trend that we've been observing for the last, you know, five to seven years. Um, and when we, with that knowledge, well, then we can start to look at some of the state-based processes as well. So following the bushfires in Victoria, there was um, a couple of big, really uh, quite significant reports by the Inspector General of Emergency Management in New South Wales. There was an independent bushfire inquiry. Both of those have heaps more substantial findings and recommendations. And um, so I think it's really in the state-based um, inquiries that we find the, the, the most useful information. Um, both of them, I feel, did a pretty good job at highlighting some of the significant issues, made some pretty clear and strong recommendations. Um, and I think in terms of implementing those recommendations, it's quite uneven, though, because uh, in Victoria we see a lot of action and a lot of processes um, from the government, um, a lot of attempts by the government and government agencies to really do better, do more, engage with communities more on their own terms and to really address the structural barriers that, that, that they have themselves and within themselves. Um, in New South Wales, we see it as a much slower-moving beast. So um, I suppose it's just still sitting and, and watching um, these things unfold and advocating where we can. Yeah, and I guess like seeing the uh, the responsibility kind of bounce between the state and federal level, um, as you mentioned, it is important at the state-based level to be able to do that more targeted inquiry and make recommendations that are more relevant to specific areas. Um, but I guess there's also the potential for uh, this, you know, shifting of responsibility to to, I guess, make um, action very difficult and kind of stagnate as well. Um, but your research has identified the exclusion of Indigenous peoples in national disaster resilience policies in Australia, and that article for the conversation I mentioned earlier included your proposal for the development of a national Indigenous disaster resilience framework. So how might such a framework be developed, especially um, in light of these shifting responsibilities, and what is needed to make this happen? Yeah, so this, this framework that I've suggested, to me, it's absolutely essential. So we see there's a few national key kind of policy documents um, that operate in Australia. Things like there's a National Disaster Resilience Handbook, there's a National um, Disaster Resilience Framework, um, like the, de- developed by sort of um, the Commonwealth of Australia, uh, sorry, the Council of Australian Government, so it sits over all of them. And when you look at these national... Uh, disaster policy, disaster resilience policies and strategies, um, it's, there's just a, an almost criminal lack of engagement with Indigenous people. Um, you know, as, as, as uh, populations with unique profiles, as unique rights holders, as the thing sort of unique housing and land rights arrangements, um, you know, completely ignoring the role of community-controlled sectors and prescribed corporations, like, just... And, and ignoring Indigenous peoples' connection with country as well and what that means for them in times of disaster. So you, you see a complete absence, a removal of Indigenous peoples from these really critical key national policy instruments. And so what we see then is when... Um, the consequences of that is that when disasters do unfold, like they are currently in northern New South Wales in particular, you see policy responses that align with these strategies, but that, but that invariably make the disaster worse for Indigenous people. And you can look at things like 
how they um, design and provide emergency relief funding, for instance. So, you know, the, the, the packages that they, that government, state and federal announce for emergency payments are centred around kind of like average household sizes. So in Australia, I think the average household size, according to the ABS, is like 2.6 um, 2. adults. So that's like two adults and a couple of children. So it's a weird way of thinking about it, it's sort of like 0.6 of an individual, but certainly in national statistics, that's how they um, design them. And the relief payments are designed according to that. But the but the profile of Indigenous housing is very, very different. It's, you know, it, it's, it, it's completely different. It's almost like, I think it's about 3.8 per household in Indigenous, um, the National Indigenous Housing Average. And so you see strategies, an emergency strategy is designed who fit non-Indigenous populations, and they just are completely inadequate with the realities of Indigenous communities. And so this is why we need our own standalone National Indigenous Disaster Resilience Framework that draws out these issues, that can talk back to this big national policy landscape, and that kind of lays a foundation for when government, state and federal, design these relief um, systems, that they're, that they're doing it from an evidence base. They're doing it... Um, you know, with a, with the knowledge of what 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 are the unique realities for Indigenous people that are going to, um, you know, um, as I said, make worse or actually be able to support them in times of disaster. So, um, I, and, and and without having that focus just on our own communities, I feel like it will just be subsumed and made absent again in these larger policy documents as they as they will be reformed over the next few years. Yeah, definitely. And we will link people to that article in the conversation as well, because you also provided some links in there uh, to work that's currently going on, but also to kind of back up some of the important information you've shared with us. Now, just to wrap up, I was wondering if you wanted to, um, you know, give listeners the, the opportunity to engage with any Indigenous-led initiatives, um, to learn more and also to take action. And uh, also, where can people find your own research? Yeah, so I th- uh, um, there's a few different organisations that are doing some really good work, and you spoke um, about Tashiko and, and Seedmob earlier. They're a fantastic organisation led by Aboriginal Torres the young people, you know, really on the on the front lines of advocating for for you know climate change, um, you know, effective climate change policies. So really, kind of support those in the cultural land management space. There's um, you know Five Six Alliance Aboriginal Corporation, which um, you know, it's kind of the peak body to, to, to promote cultural burning throughout Australia. Um, so there's a couple of, uh, yeah, just a couple of organisations that, that that people can kind of look up and support. And, um, and yeah, my stuff is just on the website and or, or you can follow me on Twitter if you, if you want to and all that. Um, my research gets shared on there. But really, to me, the biggest thing that people can do, if you really want to get involved, if you really want to support people, write to your own member. You know, the emergency management planning in this country, um, some of the most important and critical emergency management plans are actually at the local level, regional level. So look at the local council, the local government emergency management plan. They're all required to have one. Look them up and and look for any mentions of Indigenous peoples, of Aboriginal peoples, of Aboriginal communities. If they're not, get in contact with your local council and ask them why not and tell them it's not good enough. And, and be, you know, write, write to your local member and ask them about what they're doing to support cultural animation programs, Aboriginal ranger groups and that kind of thing. So just that, that grassroots advocacy means a lot. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we love a concrete action to take. This is very, very clear. Um, listeners can listen back to this later so that you know what to do. Write to your local member. Check whether Aboriginal people have been actually consulted in these plans. Uh, Baimi, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us this morning. It's been really great to have you on. Yeah, thank you. Really appreciate it. So that was Baimi Williamson, a research associate and PhD candidate at the Australian National University, who is speaking with us about the disproportionate vulnerability of Indigenous peoples to climate change and the need for Indigenous-centred disaster management strategies in Australia. So, here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan. change we need to show broad community support. Show your support for walking and cycling in the city of Yarra by appearing as a champion on the Streets Alive website, representing your local street, neighbourhood or school. It's fast, free and simple. Learn more at streets-alive-yarra.org. A 3CR supporter. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And just a reminder again that we have a giveaway on today's show and you uh, can call in for that pretty much now. Yes, we have free tickets available to subscribers of 3CR's Thursday Breakfast. So it's two double passes for Fire in the Head at the La Mama Theatre on Thursday the 17th of March. And this play is about the heroic life of Kate Kelly, this is Ditchinette, and the deep brooded truths about gender and violence in Australia. As well as one double pass to the Groove Tunes music show on Saturday 19th of March at the Corner Hotel in Swan Street in Richmond, uh, which is an accessible event. And all you need to do is call the station this morning between 8 to 8.30 on 9419 or SMS 0488 809 yeah, I'm sure that heaps of people have been calling and texting, and I'm sure the phone is ringing off the hook. We can't hear it here in the studio, but really encourage people to, uh, yeah, call or text in. And again, this is for 3CR subscribers, so make sure that you're subscribed and then call in to, uh, I guess, throw your hat in the ring to get this uh, two double passes for Fire in the Head at the La Mama Theater and one double pass to the Groove Tunes music show. Um, very exciting and uh, excellent to be back in back in live events. Do you have a few children's picture books or footy boots that your kids have outgrown but want to find them a loving home? Well, drop them in at 3CR and put them in the books and boots bin. 
Books and Boots regularly sends pre-loved children's picture books and sports footwear to remote and regional First Nations communities and children across the country. Contact us at Books and Boots or go to the website www.booksandboots.org.au We love a good book. All right, we're about to go to a quick little chat uh, hosted by Malika. Malika, take it away. Thanks, team. Um, just a content warning for listeners. This interview will discuss sexual harassment and abuse. So if you do feel like you need some support after today's interview, please contact 1-800-RESPECT on 1-800-737-732 or Lifeline on 131114. Um, so we're just going to jump into an interview with Danya, who is the founder of Kate's List, which does work around advocating to make politics and workspaces safer for women and people of colour. Good morning, Danya. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me. Um, just jumping straight into it, for listeners that might be unaware, could you please share a little bit about the work you do through Kate's List? Yeah, um, so I think when I started, the, well, launched the campaign publicly, in 2019, there were a couple of key motivations. The first was that when I had tried to sort of seek help in relation to what was happening for me, uh, when the events first took place, including after every incident of harassment and after the incidents of attempted rape, the language that I was continuously on the receiving end was, you know, why don't you just be in a relationship with him? Why don't you... Um, just leave your boyfriend and be with him. And I think that there was also a racial dimension to some of the commentary and responses because, you know, the bent of some of the answers and, in fact, some of the explicit things that were said would include, well, you know, it, it's harder for you. Like, being in a relationship with somebody who's in a good position, like, why would you not want to do that? Like, why would you not want to try to compensate for what's hard for you in political life by trying to be with someone who's accepted. Um, and, you know, like this sort of language, I think, is sadly extremely common, um, whether it's said it that explicitly or not. Um, and that rhetoric is very common because I think a lot of people misunderstand or don't care enough about how hard and coercive these situations can be, especially if you're a marginalised person. Because I think a lot of individuals either feel coerced into acquiescing and going along with what's happening, which is not the same thing as consenting because they're convinced and manipulated into feeling it's the only way they'll ever get any respect or for the worst abuse to stop. Or alternatively, what happens to them is what happens to me, which is that the experience is so awful that you um, it ends up sort of breaking something within you and you you leave because you can't handle it and you're leaving a huge part of yourself and your career behind. And I never wanted for other women to feel that way or to have to go through that, which is why I started the campaign. And it's also taken on a particular focus of wanting to advocate for those issues that relate to intersectionality and oppression and marginalisation of people of colour because I think that um, whilst it's obviously good and important that we've begun to recognise some First Nations voices, and though that's nowhere near enough, I'd say it's sort of 70% white, 30% First Nations some of the time, there's very, very rarely any recognition of 
you know, call people as a standalone group. And I think we need to fix that in part because it's not respectful to lump every minority together. I don't think that serves First Nations people to speak for them. But I certainly don't feel that, you know, is is useful for called people either. Yeah, and kind of touching on that point, like you said, like over the last few years, whilst there has been increasing numbers of concerns and allegations raised around sexual harassment, um, as well as the lack of a formal complaint process, a lot of this campaigning and this conversation is centred around white, cisgendered, able-bodied women um, at the front and centre of these campaigns. And what has it like been for you to not receive support or not feel represented in these conversations and what, like, how can we work towards having more intersectional representation when advocating for this justice? Oh, honestly, I would say it's been somewhat devastating. Like, you know, I think to feel that you've made yourself so vulnerable and have shared some of the worst things that have happened to you and to see, you know, after Brittany told her story, for example, people instead just saying to me, oh, so you were obviously inspired by her and told your story after she did. Um, or not crediting anything that I had done anymore. It just it felt like it did not matter how hard I worked. There was just this willingness to erase me and erase my work that nobody was prepared to yeah. call out within themselves or see within themselves in those terms. And I'm still aware that I have the privilege of being able to share my story in the first place, that I still had that baseline level of security that allowed for me to share that. And so it's not that I'm blind to that. I think it is that the experience of erasure that I had where individuals were so willing to remove me from any cultural commentary on the Me Too movement and were so willing to want to centre white women who came after me instead, it just indicated to me how insurmountable the barriers are for not just me, but all marginalised people um, when it comes to sharing their stories and having their trauma be taken seriously. And mm. I think it is particularly egregious that's happened when the underlying spirit of the Me Too movement, founded by Trana Burke, sadly again, in many, many years before she was given credit for it, she launched it in 2006, and in 2017 it sort of rose to prominence because of Alyssa Milano's tweet, which again speaks to this willingness to just look to watch white women say, and she had to fight for her intellectual property. But I mean, even looking at the intention underpinning that movement, it was to profile the voices and stories of people of colour who were especially marginalised and you know, other marginalised people whose experiences of sexual and domestic violence were often completely erased. And so a fundamental pillar of her campaign was wanting to engage in grassroots action to uplift and sent to the voices of marginalised people and people of colour. And how can we be true to what the Me Too is really about in Australia if we are continuing to singularly focus upon the stories of, you know, middle-class to upper-middle-class white, cisgender and able-bodied women? Yeah, such an important point. And um, it, it sounds like it is just a common theme where women of colour and other folks their voices are kind of getting lost in this narrative even though they're so graciously sharing their stories and I guess for listeners that do want to follow and support the work you are doing and learn more about it um, where can they find out more about this what is the best way to follow you and your work Danya? Um, yeah thank you I think the um, there is the Kate's List 
website, um, which is just www.catesplits.com.au. Um, I think people can also follow me on Twitter um, or Instagram and, um, you know, I'm sure, like, the handles can sort of be posted alongside yes, the episode. That. Yes. And there's also a GoFundMe that I've created, which, um, you know, obviously only any anybody is in a position to do so and is able to do so comfortably, it would mean a lot to receive sort of donations through there. Yeah. It can be particularly difficult, I think, from the position, obviously, of a marginalised person to get support to continue this work. And I think that that's a really big yeah. problem we all need to think about. Um, yes. The lack of support offered to marginalised people for their work resulting in less services to all marginalised people. Yeah. So there's only so much you can do. Um, without receiving the support that you need. So if anybody is in a position to donate to that GoFundMe, um, that would be much appreciated. And if you'd also like to be a part of the campaign or to join um, and assist in the advocacy or tell your story, like whichever the, of the two will both, um, they can please just, do get in touch. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning, Danya. I'm so sorry. We're going to have to wrap up. Um, but we'll definitely post all the links in the chat. Thank you, Danya. Thanks so much. I really appreciate this. Um, you're listening to 3CR 855am and we just heard from an interview from Danya from Kate's List and if you do feel like you need some support following that interview, please reach out to Lifeline on 131114. Yep, and um, I'll just do a quick rundown for the end of our show today. So um, maybe I'll... Uh, Malika, do you want to maybe kick us off with a very, very brief overview of what you chatted about? Yes, so firstly, we spoke with Dakshini Surya Kumaran, who's the Director of Tech Policy at Reset Australia, and they joined us to talk about moderation for political ads on social media platforms. And then we were joined by Dr. Nisha Tapial and Sneha Krispal, who are academics, and they joined us to talk about the National Anti-Racism Framework in relation to caste discrimination. We also spoke with Biami Williamson about uh, the need for Indigenous-centred disaster management in so-called Australia. And uh, last up, we heard Danya, um, who's the founder of Kate's List, discussing intersectionality and gender equity and women's safety. That's all we've got time for today, and we'll see you next time on Thursday Breakfast. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.